Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. This is the podcast that brings you the greatest innovation change makers in the world of insurance and insure tech. We speak to innovation leaders from carriers and brokers. We speak to insure tech founders and C-suite executives. And we bring you all of the people that add value to that community, whether it be private equity, venture capitalists, or even people like organizational psychologists and thought leaders and futurists. We try really hard to bring you the most innovative people in the world of insurance on a global basis. So with that in mind, we'd love your support. So please like, share, follow or subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Bond. Welcome to the Leadership Insurance Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by FinPro. FinPro is a leading insurtech specialist recruitment business that operates on a global basis. We have delivered assignments across North America, throughout Europe and into Asia. We are super excited to speak to anyone who has some recruitment challenges that is either starting or scaling a business. And we're confident we can help you find the people to help you innovate the world of insurance one new hire at a time please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com for more information. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. Um, I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today, um, and I'm aware that I say that every week, uh, but I'm very lucky to be, one, in the Lloyd's lab, um, and secondly, with my guest, Bruce Carnegie-Brown. Bruce, good morning. Nice to be here. Yeah, well, thank you very, very much. Um, and as we always say, um, it's, it's, it, I could do a potted history uh, of your background, but it's probably better to hear it from you. So. Be great to, for you to introduce yourself to the cameras and um, your role here at Lloyd's, and, and obviously a little bit about your sort of journey to the, this point today. Well, Alex, as you say, Bruce Carnegie Brown is my name. Um, I tumbled into banking out of university and spent the first 20 years of my life uh, in the banking industry, um, most of that with uh, JP Morgan, uh, and then made a switch uh, in 2003 to uh, the insurance industry. Mm-hmm working first uh, for Marsh, uh, first in their UK business and then running the European operations of uh, Marsh. Uh, I actually then had a spell in the private equity uh, industry um, and during that time began to enjoy the the sort of project nature of that work, working on a variety of different projects. And so after that I I sort of moved into what people call a plural existence Mm -hmm. Um, and most of my uh, plural existence has been in either banking or insurance for obvious reasons. So I've um, worked for underwriting firms and uh, broking firms uh, in a non-executive capacity. And then took on the chairmanship of Lloyd's of London in 2017 and have been doing uh, that uh, ever since. Um, I also uh, sit on the board of the Santander Banking Group uh, based in Madrid to so keep my hand in from a banking perspective. Um, and I chair a small startup business called Cover that has been growing very fast. It's a motor insurance um, app um, and has just completed a, a fundraise um, and um, doing, doing great work in the UK. Um, and then in terms of uh, uh, non-work activities, I, I'm chairman of the MCC. Mm-hmm. So that takes up a huge amount of time. Um, uh, but allows me to watch a lot of cricket. 
I was going to say that sounds, that sounds slightly more fun than some of the, <laughs> the other things. Um, uh, and and Cover is one of those businesses which is great from a, an insure tech uh, you know, recruiter's perspective to, to know I actually got to use it quite recently. Actually, I went to a wedding and um, my, my dad was very concerned about his car, but I managed to get insured on it for a short period of time. So, yeah, um, shout out to Cover actually, because uh, we, we talk about insure tech, but it's nice to actually be able to engage with one. Um, and, and the experience was, was really, really good. It was really easy. Um, I wanted to talk to you about innovation. You know, we're here in the lab. Innovation is what we sort of talk about here in the Lloyd's lab. Um, and just wanted to start with a real general question of what innovation actually means to you. I think innovation is essentially two things, really. First, it's about continuous improvement of existing processes and platforms and products. Mm -hmm. uh, but secondly, it's about creativity. And I think uh, uh, thinking about new issues, new risks, new challenges that need to be addressed unmet needs of customers is a good, is a good way of framing it. Mm. Um, and I think you need to move along both those axes. Um, and sometimes the day-to-day -day process improvement is, is somewhat understated in an insure-tech um, world, but it has every um, bit as, as important a role uh, in making sure that insurance continues to be kind of relevant uh, to its customers, uh, really cost-efficient in the way that it, it delivers its service, and improves the confidence of customers uh, in our products. Mm. It's interesting because we, we, we nearly started out the podcast going uh, the Leadership and Innovation podcast and, and, um, or Innovation Insurance and we were playing with that but we were really concerned that I think innovation at some point got sort of hijacked to just talk about technology and it can't just be about technology and, and you know we're sitting here today and, and on the way in you know Lloyd's is a, is, a, is a bit emptier because people are working remotely we're having kind of um, different working environments and, and you know that falls into the innovation bucket and we've changed the way that we work and, and you know I, th I think it's pros and cons arguments for but I think most people are probably happier with this kind of flexible working that we have so I think that's important um, talking about specifically insurance you know what forms have you specifically seen in the insurance sector in terms of innovation? You know, where have you seen the kind of biggest leaps um, since you've taken on this role, particularly as a chairman of a chairman of Lloyd's? Well, actually, in many ways, uh, the early leaps for me came outside Lloyd's. Mm. So, if you look at Money Supermarket, where I sat on the board for a, for a number of years, you look at how that's transformed um, the insurance, the motor insurance industry in the UK uh, in the last twenty years. It's been quite extraordinary, and you know what you can do now is go online and you get ninety two quotes for your motor insurance uh, in the space of two minutes. Mm. Um, and you know, beforehand, you had to go to a broker. And it would be impossible for a broker to find 92 quotes uh, for your business in two minutes, and from which you then get to make an immediate um, choice. And so you think about the transformation power of technology, in this case, particularly the uh, internet and digitization of processes. You then move to something like Cover. And Cover, you talked about Cover being uh, an app that is really convenient to use, but of course it's entirely digitally based mm -hmm. and it's on your phone. Um, and it allows you to get covered for motor insurance for reasonably short periods of time um, with great efficiency. And if you look at the traditional ways of selling motor insurance, it's a 12-month policy yeah. uh, that you renew once a year. And, and again, this would not have been possible without uh, progress around technology. But it's also around all the other things, as you suggest, the, the non-technology things of customer service and, and mm. understanding customer needs and trying to provide a different product for a different service. So we live our lives today much more in a, a subscription place than an ownership place today yeah. than was certainly true even 10 years ago. Um, and applications that respond to that um, have a real purpose. And I think this is beginning to infect our, our thinking about a traditional market like Lloyd's. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, if you think about uh, cargoes and shipping coming together at reasonably short notice, uh, adapting the covers depending on the environment um, uh, of those things happening. So it's one thing to, to ensure things for a 12-month period. If you own an aeroplane or run an aeroplane, you're almost certainly just ensuring it on a 12-month basis. But if you're bringing projects together at short notice, you're going to need something that responds in a short period of time. And the digitization of the insurance market opens up huge opportunities for adaptable product. We now even have sensors that uh, you put into to ships um, and you can track them as they go through war zones and out of war zones. So you're only paying for the war zone cover while you're in the war zone. You don't have to buy that uh, cover permanently for 365 days of the year. So, so those kinds of opportunities make us much more responsive to customer needs and much more adaptable. Mm. It's interesting as well to hear you talk so much about customer. Um, you, is that really what we should have in the mind when we're thinking about innovation? Is, is it all come back to that end consumer? Well, I will start um, with worrying about how far insurance companies are from their customers, particularly insurance companies like Lloyd's, mm -hmm. that are markets essentially and mm -hmm. are disintermediated from their customer by brokers. Um, and you've got to keep thinking about the customer to get the right answer. And what we know about all of our customers, and indeed I suspect it's true of you as an individual, is that we're all underinsured. Mm -hmm. And instead of saying our customers should buy more insurance, we have to ask ourselves why they don't buy yeah. more of our product. And I, I've kind of referenced, I think, the three bases for me around that issue. Um, the, the first is confidence, the second is cost, and the third is relevance. Mm -hmm. um, and I think our product is quite expensive to deliver to our customers. Uh, and we've got to think of ways of uh, delivering it more efficiently to our customers. Um, and I think actually the consumer lines business, the things like motor insurance, household insurance, has done a better job of that than some of the big commercial uh, lines that we're engaged in at, at Lloyd's. Mm -hmm. The second issue is confidence. You know, typically in a financial services product, there's an exchange of value at the point that you do the transaction. I sell you a bond, you give me cash. The deal wouldn't happen if there wasn't an, uh, an equivalent exchange of value at that point. Yeah. One of us may be the winner or the loser down the road, but at the point of exchange of value, you wouldn't do the trade unless it was an equal exchange of, of, of value. In insurance, it's different because you pay a premium today, but you may not have a claim at all, or you may have a claim that is deferred for months or even years. And so there's a, there's a confidence gap between those two points as to whether what you've bought will prove to be valuable to you um, and whether, of course, the insurer will pay your claim. And that's particularly true given that insurance is about insuring unknowable and unforeseeable things. So the, the risk issues are much greater in insurance than they are in most financial services transactions. They're less predictable uh, in terms of their, their outcomes. And that's precisely the value of insurance, of course, is to take that risk off you and on to, and on to me. But you need to have confidence that we're going to, to be able to pay the claim. Mm. And then the third piece on relevance, of course, is your risks are changing. And we often use the example here at Lloyd's of uh, Airbnb being a hotel company that doesn't own any hotels or Uber being a taxi company that doesn't own any taxis and so if you're really good at insuring property which we've been doing for 300 years in this market um, you're less relevant today because most things are now in an intangible world rather than in a tangible world in terms of where where value is and so making sure we have products that adapt to our customers changing risks is incredibly important. Mm, completely understand. I wanted to talk to you about your, um, I think you've got a great insight, an interesting insight, because you've worked on the kind of financial services side, banking sector, then you've moved into insurance. And in insurance, particularly when we talk about innovation, a lot of what we talk about is, is that we're sort of going through 
archive digitalization 20 years behind uh, banking. You, would you say that's kind of fair, your sort of view? Do you, do you think we're on, where do you think we are on our journey? Um, and, and how does it compare to kind of the transition that maybe the banking sector went through? Well, um, we are on that journey and almost certainly we started it later than other parts of the financial services market. I think there are some quite good reasons mm. uh, for that, um, largely to do with the, the timeliness of payments in the banking system. And in insurance, it's, it's not all about um, speed of payment. It's about kind of accuracy of evaluation of a claim and back to this comment before about the, the promise to pay. Of course. Um, and therefore, it's unsurprising that in insurance, the most active adopters of digitalization um, and new technology have been the consumer lines businesses, which have huge volumes of activity, lots of uh, high volume, low value uh, claims in them where there's a huge need for efficiency around process. Mm -hmm. When you get to the the bigger end of the market, the large commercial uh, and reinsurance risks. There are obviously fewer transactions, but the complexity of them is, is much greater, and therefore the human interaction has uh, been stickier in terms of its value proposition. So I, I sometimes use the example in banking of the difference between a foreign exchange transaction and a mergers and acquisitions transaction. In foreign exchange, pretty much 100% of that market is now digital. Mm -hmm. There's a huge amount of data, so it's a reasonably perfect market in terms of information. You get your quote, you decide to take it or not in terms of the exchange rate that you, you want. Very few uh, conversations have to happen around that. But if you look at a merger and acquisition uh, transaction, people are gathered in a room, there are lawyers, there are accountants, there are buyers, there are sellers. Uh, and, uh, quite a lot of um, uh, uh, support, expertise needed to affect that transaction, as well, of course, quite a lot of emotion when you're selling a business or buying a business. Uh, there's quite a lot of emotion in it. And that process has really not been digitized at all. And the same is true, I think, increasingly in insurance. So what you're seeing is the more commoditized ends of the business um, digitizing more quickly, uh, use of algorithms to price product. But as you get into more complex space, if you're a global uh, a company with risks in different parts of the world requiring different lines of insurance to protect your business, you're going to have a more complex set of, of risks and risk solutions. And so inevitably, there's quite a lot of advice that comes into determining uh, what your risk profile is, what risks you want to retain, what risks you want to lay off in the insurance market. And so that part of the market will continue to be slower to mm. uh, digitize um, than the commoditized part of the market. So what you see is already some growth out of the consumer lines business into small commercial. So if you're a, a plumber, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're busy wanting to do your plumbing job. You aren't that interested in, in getting into the world of insurance. But what you know is that your insurance requirements are reasonably complex. You might have an employee. You might create a flood in the house that you're doing plumbing for. Mm -hmm. You've got a bunch of liabilities that you need an insurance policy for. But typically what you want to know is that you're buying a policy that works for all plumbers. And so, yeah. again, that's sort of capable of automation. Um, but we've been doing kind of earthquakes for 200 years at Lloyd's. It's quite hard to automate that process because yeah. even with all the data that we have, these things are less predictable. You can still add algorithms and, and improve the data uh, that you have in those situations, but, but it still requires a bit of human judgment. Mm -hmm. And what is the hedge for an earthquake? How do you protect yourself against, um, uh, against earthquake risk in an insurance market? As you know, insurance fundamentally is about collecting the premiums of the many and paying the claims of the, of the few. And so understanding whether providing earthquake insurance in Tokyo is a hedge to providing earthquake insurance in Los Angeles is, is quite a technical issue, but it also requires 
quite a lot of individual judgment. Mm. Do you think there's an element where we as a market have, have I don't think we've under, I was going to make the argument that we've kind of undersold the services to a certain point because really we should be embracing the technology because it enables us to kind of serve our consumers, whoever they may be, more accurately. And we can get into the kind of higher value that we add, which is that human interaction, that consultancy piece. Because I, I always think about broking. Broking, since um, I've been in the market 15 years, was always seen as um, people wanted to reframe it as risk advisors, but actually weren't changing the role. But I think that now is more pertinent to what they do and more pertinent to what the brokers of the future are going to look like, is utilising technology to give your clients or whoever they may be a much better uh, forensic view of, of their risk profile and then advising them accordingly because I think the M&A example is such a good one because you wouldn't want to do it just based on their data even if it's data that you could get yourself you still want someone to manage that transaction um, do you think it's fair to say that we've certainly maybe done a bad PR job of, of that kind of value-added service that we do so I think there's multiple issues in, in that question. First, I think it is easy to say that insurance has not done a good enough job in promoting itself and the value proposition that it has. And we've got to constantly um, address that and it comes back to this uh, protection gap that we talked about mm. before. People don't buy enough insurance and, and why is that the case? I think the second piece in terms of our working habits, um, for brokers and for underwriters, there's too much process alongside the value added. Mm. Um, and you know, I'm very clear that brokers have a huge role to play in providing advice to customers uh, in the proper management of their risks and in the proper buying of insurance protection. But too much of their day job is taken up with the process of, of delivering that, which also accounts for why a lot of what we do costs too much. Um, and if we can take the process away from brokers and underwriters by automating it, by creating straight through processing, then we're freeing up time for brokers and underwriters to have more substantive conversations on the value-added part of what they do. Mm -hmm. Now, people are a little bit nervous about giving up on the process because they're in the process, yeah. uh, they're part of the process, and they're a bit worried that if somebody discovers they're only doing half a job because we've taken away the process half of their job, that they'll get fired. And mm -hmm. we haven't really persuaded people enough that actually it's a much more exciting opportunity if they're spending 100% of the time on the value-added issues and they're not spending any of the time on, on the process. And so, you know, we have active uh, conversations now with brokers about whether premium should be paid directly by the customer to the underwriter or the claim uh, in reverse. You know, why, do, why do these things get channeled through brokers? It, it adds to the process, it slows the process down, uh, it creates some inefficiency and all of that. In, in most um, large uh, uh, complex risks, and particularly in a market like, like Lloyd's, uh, it's the responsibility of the broker actually to put the data into our systems. But one of the things that the market does well here is respond to a customer by going on risk before the documentation is complete. Well, unsurprisingly, a broker loses interest once you've gone on risk. They move on to the next transaction. And so what happens is there's an endless cycle of rework afterwards to try to get the data populated, mm -hmm. make sure it's accurate somewhere between broker and underwriter uh, and the settlement systems. If we could make it uh, straight through at the point um, of origination, we would take a huge amount of costs out of the market. We would free ourselves up doing more of what you suggest by way of advocating to customers, being better advocates of our, of our product capabilities and our customer service propositions. Mm, mm. I wanted to talk about the history of, you know, Lloyd's, we've got you know, three centuries of history. Um, I mean, you can't escape it when you're in the building. It's one of the charms of it. The, the sort of, where's the friction of, is there friction of old meets the new or, or how is that impacted by that kind of history, do you think, that kind of drive towards innovation? 
So I, I prefer to see the history as a continuum rather than as a juxtaposition. I don't think it is old versus new. Mm -hmm. I just think that actually you can celebrate the fact that by having been around for 330 years, we've done some pretty good things over time to adapt to very changing circumstances. And mm -hmm. that should give us a lot of confidence about our ability to adapt and change uh, in, into the future. And many other organizations, whether they're in insurance or otherwise in business, have disappeared yeah. in that time. And the Lloyd's market has found a way to continue to thrive. Um, it's also, of course, the reason why London is uh, a global center for insurance. By having been built up around Lloyd's within 10 minutes of Lime Street, you've got all kinds of insurance services, not just brokers and underwriters, but loss adjusters and accountants, mm -hmm. um, actuaries, uh, lawyers, that are all specialist uh, experts um, in, in this issue. But it, it makes it quite a physical environment. And one mm -hmm. of the challenges we've got to think about is if we're going to move towards more remote working, more remote access to the market, will we lose some of that centricity uh, that our location gives us? And mm -hmm. how will we replace that? And you identified the room as being quieter today than, than previously, and that's largely because our business is very much moved on online. And so mm -hmm. what is the value of the central trading room at Lloyd's? Um, and in many ways, I think it probably goes back to that original coffee shop that we started in, yep. that it's a convening space for people to come together and discuss. It's much less important as a transactional processing space, which is what it's been for the last uh, couple of hundred years. Um, it'll become much more a place where people discuss issues, uh, share risks, think about how risks can be uh, underwritten and distributed. Um, and um, I don't think we fully understand how that might evolve. But actually, the truth is the market is much more digital than people sometimes give it, give it credit for. We've clearly been closed as a physical building mm. uh, for large parts of the last two years because of the pandemic, and yet the business moved seamlessly on, online. And so, again, this juxtaposition of the old and the new is, is less uh, binary than people think. Yeah. So I think it's much more about behaviors, adopting new ways of working. Uh, I was t t telling somebody the other day that I, I struggle with moving from a BlackBerry to an iPhone because I really mm. like the tactile nature of the yep. BlackBerry and the click of the keys and my fat fingers on the, <laughs> on, on the Apple keyboard took a lot of time to adjust to. And um, you know, these are things that young people find much more intuitive and older people s struggle with. And it's those kinds of behaviors that we have to change. So it's about adopting new ways of working and making sure people see the benefits of making that transition mm. um, rather than a sort of more binary kind of is it old or is it new. Mm. And I think it's the sort of evolution versus kind of revolution version of kind of working practices. I mean, we talk about this a lot, you know, we're, we're in executive search business, we talk about people's you know, working habits and, and there was a big drive to say, well, we want to be remote, remote forever. Well, we've seen that since the world's opened up again, people don't want that. People do want places where they can come and meet. And, and if it's nothing more than building camaraderie, a sense of togetherness, particularly when you're in a marketplace like Lloyd's, that's important in its own right. Um, you know, I think about our business, we've, we've been talking about, do we get an office, do we not? And I, I think we almost certainly will, but what, what role that plays, what role the buildings play will, is, is changing and evolving. And, and, and I think you're right, I don't think people have the answer yet. Because we also talk about building the work environment for the future. We can't do that at the expense of the today, whereas you know, there'll be a generation of people coming through who've made friends online, who communicate online as their sort of daily discourse, and they probably won't be impacted like the current working um, population. But you know, if you took it away immediately, I think it would be very damaging um, in terms of quality, and I think the customer would ultimately pay. Um, I wanted to shift gears slightly away from um, 
the kind of old versus the new, you know, but how does Lloyd's remain relevant in this environment of change? Um, and and, uh, and how, have, how have Lloyd's been acting for kind of driving innovation? Well, happily, Lloyd's has always had a strong reputation for innovation and, and over the decades, um, you know, has been the first underwriter of motor insurance, has been the first underwriter of satellites uh, being projected into space, has been the first underwriter of cyber insurance um, risks. And, uh, and I think we're very proud of that. Um, and it's part of how we retain our leadership uh, in the insurance industry mm -hmm. prospectively. I, I do think the insurance industry itself is not over-blessed with innovation. And so, uh, by being the best in it, that isn't necessarily the best <laughs> across classes yeah, sure. of business. And I think the whole industry needs to become more alive to the challenge and opportunity presented by uh, innovation. And you know, we're faced with more complex risks today than in, almost at any time. When you think about um, what's happening around the pandemic and now the war in Ukraine and its impact on uh, uh, supply chains and the, uh, the price of fuel, uh, and the price of agriculture, these are all having huge impacts on uh, our customers' uh, lives and livelihoods. And, and risk is very much an issue that is around the boardroom table uh, mm -hmm. here. And insurance has a real role to play. We haven't even touched yet on climate change, yeah. which yeah. You know, is, is a huge issue for everyone and where um, we already play a big role because we are essentially already underwriting, um, underwriting climate change. 25% of our capital in the Lloyd's market is put behind underwriting natural catastrophes uh, around the world. Those are clearly increasing in frequency and severity, and I think that's pretty clear that it's because of, of, of climate change. And mm -hmm. so one in a hundred events, one in a hundred year events are occurring two, three, four times in a hundred years uh, in, in recent um, memory. And you know, how are we going to adapt and respond to that? How are we going to help our customers mm -hmm. adapt and respond to those uh, challenges? And how can we be part of that that conversation. All of these are issues that I think make us very relevant to uh, the, the development of risk and risk management tools in the modern world. I wanted to pick up on that point because I think it's a really important one. It, it, you know, when it comes to sort of the ESG initiative, Lloyd's has got the power to kind of really set the tone for the industry. Um, do you think? Do you think? We've, do you think Lloyd's have been brave enough in their approach to them, or, or kind of? Potentially, I'm oversimplifying or overstating the role that we can play. But but looking at sort of fossil fuels as an example, should they be insurable? You know, should we take a market view on to say that they're that they're uninsurable because of the damage they do to climate change? So I think we're clear that we want to ensure the transition, but there has to be a transition. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to avoid cliff edges uh, because I think those are dangerous. And I think actually that's been writ large in the Ukraine uh, mm -hmm. conflict, that where you suddenly have a conflict. Uh, supply chains uh, collapse and we've seen dramatic changes in the price uh, of energy and increasingly the price of food as a result. Mm. And, and we won't get to uh, public support for the long-term need to move to net zero if we ruin people's lives along the way. Sure. Um, and so I like to think of what we've done at Lloyd's as bookending the issues. So at the back end we've signed up actively for net zero by 2050. We're in good company with most other financial services organizations through the uh, Glasgow Financial Initiative, GFANS. We're also part of the Net Zero Insurance Alliance amongst uh, insurance uh, companies. Uh, and we chair the Prince of Wales Sustainable Markets Initiative for insurance, his vertical on that. And that allows us actually both to convene our industry globally around these issues, but also to partner with other industries, energy, construction, transportation, that are all faced with quite 
important impacts on their business models as a result of climate change. So first and foremost, there's a convening power for Lloyd's uh, in that. The second piece we've done in the book, in the front end of the book, end, of course, is just look at our own footprint. Relatively easy for uh, services organizations. We don't emit a lot of carbon, uh, but we do have a carbon footprint that we can work hard on uh, reducing immediately our scope one and scope two uh, emissions. And then you've got this tough bit in the middle, which is creating this glide path from where we are to where we need to get to that fundamentally has to go through this fossil fuel um, bubble, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and it isn't uh, good enough to say switch it off. And we've even said, you know, people then say, well, I'm only talking about new projects. You say, well, okay, so one thing to talk about new projects as long as you're confident in the supply of traditional projects. But as we've seen in Russia, even the supply of traditional products can get cut off. Mm. And so there is a place for uh, supporting some new products as long as ultimately we move to a net zero position. And, and alongside uh, getting out of, the, of, of fossil fuels, we need to get into renewables. And so we are busy underwriting new products. And the one that's quite interesting to talk about is hydrogen, for instance. I mean, hydrogen has a very small carbon footprint, uh, but what we all know and grew up knowing is it's highly combustible. Yeah. And therefore, as an insurance matter, it's quite risky. Uh, and if it's going to be um, manufactured at scale and, and be in the supply chains, the fuel supply chains of a whole variety of industries, it, it absolutely needs to be a stable product that's capable of, of being uh, insured. And so we've got pilot projects going on that kind of issue. Nuclear is another thing. We've been insuring nuclear in the Lloyd's market for a number of years, but nuclear for a number of years is becoming less and less fashionable as people moved away from that. It's now increasing in fashion because it has a zero carbon uh, footprint. Um, but that is a, a peculiarly difficult risk to underwrite. It's a very good risk until it isn't. Yes. And it's kind of binary in terms of its outcomes. And so yes. thinking through all of these issues is part of making sure that we have a series of policies that allow the market to respond to the challenge. And I, so I think of it as a glide path. Um, and I think it is really important that our customers are transitioning. I think the piece that's missing, uh, not just for Lloyd's or the insurance industry, but actually for all of us, is a relatively sensible measure of carbon impact so mm -hmm. that we can evaluate the changes that our customers are making, we can see who's leading and who's lagging on these issues, and we can make sure we're all on this path to get to net zero. And I have some frustration that, that decent measurement systems are not yet available, and there's quite a lot of risk of fragmentation there, that everyone's inventing their own, which of course exposes challenges of greenwashing uh, around this. And some of them are too complicated, so people's eyes glaze over, it sort of gets like pension accounting, people get lost, <laughs> get lost in the mathematics. Some of them are too, uh, too simplistic. It, it can't just be a sort of red, amber, green, because it's a more complicated issue uh, than that. And so finding something in the middle that allows us to get started, that will undoubtedly be refined and improved over time, it is really important. So setting ourselves up for success in this. I think the other piece is technology comes back mm. to your, your questions around innovation mm. is I think today it's incredibly difficult to see how we get to net zero as a world without technology coming to our rescue, without innovation coming to our rescue. Um, and I think globally the human race has shown its ability to innovate and adapt. And so you have to be pretty confident about that. But it's another reason to underpin why Lloyd's and in places like the Lloyd's lab we need to be open and alive to these new ways of doing things that might help accelerate us along that glide path. Mm. It's interesting when we talk about sort of an industry-wide change, it kind of actually magnifies the importance of the marketplace like Lloyd's because you can have a, you know, you can have an industry-wide conversation or, or at least an you know, industry with respect Lloyd's um, businesses. Um, I wanted to move on to talk about DE&I initiatives because, you know, 
long been a challenge in the insurance industry for and, and other financial services industries. Insurance is not alone in that. Um, but what's currently been done at Lloyd's, um, and, and and what do you think kind of needs to change in respect to, um, you know, being more diverse and inclusive as a as an industry, I think, rather than just the, the corporation itself. So I think this, a bit like the climate change conversation, starts with collecting the data. Mm -hmm. um, and we hadn't collected the data across the, the marketplace, across issues of gender and ethnicity and social mobility. Um, and we're now doing that. And we started in a gender space and we set some quite um, aggressive um, uh, objectives for ourselves. So for instance, we wanted to see 35% of women in leadership positions in the marketplace by 2025. We're at 30% today. It's been creeping up a sort of percent per, per year since we started looking at this three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. um, we've got to be careful not to celebrate that because I think yeah, if you're a, a woman who's been waiting for 2,000 years to have equality of treatment in the workplace, uh, that doesn't feel like a fast enough pace, but we are making progress there. More recently, we've been trying to collect data on ethnicity. Mm -hmm. That's a bit harder because people are less trusting on that issue. Um, uh, uh, but we've set a target for the marketplace of having one in three people hired into the market being uh, from an ethnic minority background. Interestingly, we've achieved that for the corporation itself at the center already. But in the marketplace, we're probably at one in six. Yeah. Um, and if we stay at one in six, we won't move the dial sufficiently across the total population. So we've got some work to do, but there is progress being made there. Mm. The other piece is social mobility. Are we, are we providing opportunities to people from disadvantaged backgrounds um, to have the same opportunities as those of us who come from more privileged backgrounds? And what are our outreach programs? Back to your earlier conversation and challenge about insurance reaching out into its communities and its customer bases. Uh, to prove the value of what it does and to showcase the value of what it does to make this a more interesting place for people to want to come and work. And, mm. and it's, it's self-evidently true that if you're addressing the whole market of talent out there, then you have a better chance of getting the best talent in here and having the best talent stay. And it's not just about recruiting it, it is about retention and making sure everybody has, has a good experience in this market. And we'll find some issues where that's not true and where we're calling those out. We had quite a big fine for one of the managing of agents just a few months ago. And, and of course, that reprises the issue of, of whether we're genuinely an open and inclusive market. Now, those issues dated back to 2018 and the wheels of justice run slow. But I don't think that's a reason not to, to get out the hammer and hit these things pretty hard when you discover them. And there aren't really any excuses anymore for, 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 for bad behaviors uh, in the marketplace. And, and actually, I think people are enormously supportive of what we've done. But you do have to call yourselves out mm -hmm. at the beginning in terms of saying we're not in the best place and we need to get to the best place and how are we going to do it. Mm. And I think there's a Lloyd's report coming out this week, actually, that's, that's um, from the market. Yesterday. Um, and all the incidents have been down of observed you know, negative behaviours. Um, but yeah, I, and I think you've answered it perfectly there to say that it's gone down, but it's not zero. So we've still got some way to go. But, but it's positive to see that these things are having an impact. And particularly, yeah, we saw the large fine. And um, it is good to evidence that you know, Lloyd's is taking this seriously because um, you know, there's greenwashing in the environmental sector, but there's definitely been you know, a, a good PR campaign on, on issues like diversity, equity, inclusion, which haven't actually moved the dial. And it's, I think it's great to see that Lloyd's is... is but some things have been brilliant. You look at things like yeah. dive-in, you know, uh, so exactly. again, dealing with different kinds of minorities in the LBGTQ plus space. And you know, we're now in our sixth year of doing that, and that started at Lloyd's, and now is extended annually to upward of 100 
countries around the world, including some where where some of these behaviours are are illegal and, mm. and, and, and punishable. And so, again, that opportunity for Lloyd's as a convener then to let these things go out into the wider insurance industry and have other people embrace them. The challenge we've got is why is it only one week a year? You know, why yeah. why aren't we thinking about these things uh, much more regularly? But I think most people you you, you talk to come from. Uh, 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 these minority backgrounds, particularly in the areas of LGBT plus, would uh, Q plus, would say that they've seen an appreciable difference in Lloyd's willingness to welcome and be open to, to mm. these issues over the last five or six years. And I think that's something we really to be proud of. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And you know, I'm reflecting on the 15 years I've been here, it's it's a very different landscape, um, and it is more diverse. Um, I just wanted to come on to the kind of you talk about talent more. Uh, specifically, because I think you're an interesting case in point. Again, um, not, not treating you like a sort of test bunny for the industry, but because you came from a different sector, and, and, and it, it strikes me as a, you know, an obvious but brave appointment, you know, taking someone from outside the sector to come and have a leadership role. Um, do you think we've seen, seen that enough? Because that's one of the things that in my role, I, I sort of find that we don't, we're not quite brave enough. You know, we, we don't say this person you know, was very smart and very, led a business very well. We, they can probably lead one in insurance, and perhaps we're too sort of inward-looking when we look for talent. I, I think that's less and less true. I, I also think that the role of chair at Lloyd's is, is, is um, unique in a way because it is essentially a non-executive appointment. And I think when, when the market debates who it wants as its chair, uh, it periodically wants an insider and periodically wants an outsider. Yeah, and, sure. and to some extent, I'm a little bit of a compromise because yeah. I start as an outsider, but I've done um, uh, a number of years within, within the industry. Nobody in the industry would call me a native from the industry. Yeah. And again, that's in part some of the traditions of the industry. Yeah. If you weren't born into it, you're, you're not <laughs> part of it. Very true. Um, but I, 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 I see in more and more operations in the marketplace, people, for instance, trying to recruit in technology talent. How can we make insurance really mm -hmm. attractive to innovators and technologists uh, in our marketplace in the way that banking and asset management are all trying to do uh, as well. And so I, I do think the breadth of talent coming into the market um, is broadening all the time. Um, and again, part of the challenge is to make sure that not only do we recruit them, but that we retain them and, and give them career opportunities uh, in insurance that are as good as any other industry can, can offer. Um, it's unsurprising. I mean, people in any sector surround themselves with their own jargon because it reinforces their expertise. And, you know, my, my learning in coming from banking to insurance is it's a new vocabulary, but underneath it's all about risk. Yes. And so if you can translate between your experiences in banking uh, into the insurance industry and overlay it with the language of an insurer versus the language of a banker, uh, you, you can pretty quickly um, have the conversations that you need to about the key issues that the industry faces. And, um, and I think... Um, there's much to be celebrated, but there are also huge expertise within our industry that um, uh, needs to be in, uh, developed in its own right. I, I don't think it's right to say we should stick with the old, uh, not stick with the old, and, and constantly hire people from outside. It's actually really nice to have that balance and continue to learn from each other mm. in terms of our skills and expertise. Mm. No, I think retention of talent is a really interesting point because it's something that you know I reflect on. I, I joined the insurance industry, and, and at the time, didn't feel I had the, the mobility with inside my organisation. Things you know I couldn't cross pollinate to a different sector. If you joined as a claims person by accident because you stumbled into insurance, which is most people's story, you stayed in claims forever. <laughs> you didn't realise you'd set yourself a path, and I think that's that's less and less and less true. Um, but I think we. We've got a way to go, but that is kind of on a case-by-case -case basis for it. Well, I think you raised a different challenge, which is around management. 
Um, and I think the average manager in insurance is poor mm. at managing. It's true across financial services, interestingly, because the rewards typically go to the frontline people who are generating the revenues. And it's always been true in financial services. Um, but there's a little bit too much patronage in insurance. Your boss looks after you for as long as mm -hmm. um, he or she thinks you're working for them. As soon as you want to work somewhere else, uh, they're not that interested in, in helping you. I spend quite a lot of time talking to people in the market about the value, I think, of developing your own management skills because it helps you build followership. As you become more senior, you can't do everything. And if you're going to have leverage around what you, you do, you've got to have people want to work with you. Uh, and people want to work for good bosses, not bad bosses. And in fact, the most toxic thing you can ever do is work for a, a bad boss. And I'm very quick to say, if you've got a bad boss, you should leave them. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter how good the organization uh, is around that. Uh, if the organization is content to support a bad boss, um, it's not the right place uh, for you. But a good boss can make a huge amount of difference to your opportunities uh, in the workplace and give you that stretch. I mean, I could certainly point to two or three occasions in, in my career where a boss took a, took a bet on me for something that I wasn't fully capable of doing and believed that I could stretch into it. And not only was the stretching incredibly challenging, but also fulfilling, mm -hmm. uh, but also the willingness of somebody to back you when you don't have uh, kind of all the boxes ticked in terms of your capabilities. These are the things that enable you to transform your own opportunities. And so I, I think that your comment is really much more about management than it is about the skills and capabilities that we have in the industry. I think it's a really important point because, uh, yeah, I mean, in my industry, it's exactly the same. It's, you know, the leadership roles go to the revenue generating um, frontline people. Um, those skill sets have no correlation to being a good, a good manager. Uh, in fact, they're quite counter-cultural to, to, to it in many extents. So just really conscious of your time and, and, and wanting to wrap things up, you know, do you think, what do you think we need to do to stay further ahead? Um, you know, because I, I was actually going to write this question as, as uh, do you think we're being reactive, but I think in this conversation it's very clear we're not being reactive, we're always just being proactive. So, you know, what can we do to stay further ahead when it comes to sort of market innovation? Well, we haven't talked about the Lloyd's Lab, despite the fact that we're sitting in it uh, <laughs> this morning. And, you know, I think that's a, a really good uh, capability that we've developed at Lloyd's over the last three years. Uh, we're now into our eighth cohort. We've had ten uh, startup businesses in each of those cohorts. And, you know, we've, we've done things that work both ways. So we've enabled small businesses to get access to a whole market. We buddy them up with somebody in the marketplace that allows them to go and market their products and services and look for capacity to support their, their product capabilities um, and therefore help them scale more quickly than they, than they would otherwise be able to do. But also the reverse is true. People in the marketplace have, have seen different ways of doing things, how you can use data, how you can use different distribution channels to, to develop business ideas. And there have been some remarkable things that have come out of that. Um, I think parametric insurance, for instance, for me, has a, has a huge future. And we've had, a, in, in the flooding arena, we've, we've had a flood, flood flash um, in, this, in this marketplace, now three years on, uh, developing a business, a cover holder at Lloyd's. Mm -hmm. but, but if you think about mass flooding, the challenges of that as an insurance proposition, and we do a lot of flood insurance at Lloyd's, you have to wait for the water to recede. You've then got to find a loss adjuster to go in and evaluate the claim. Loss adjusters are hard to find if it's mm -hmm. mass flooding because there just aren't that many of them around, so you get in a queue for that. You've then got to do a calculation around the value of what's been lost under the policy and then pay the claim. If you, if you have a parametric product that, that just says, I will pay you if the river gets to this level, I'm not even looking at whether you've had damage or not. 
It's just actuarial. I can predict if the, lip, if the, if the river's at this level, I will pay your claim because you're likely to suffer damage. You can have your check in your bank account the following day. I think that transforms the, the relevance of our industry to our customer bases. And we've done good things around the vaccine. As you know, a lot mm -hmm. of these vaccines um, have to be stored at stable, at, at very refrigerated temperatures. And as we've tried to expand the vaccine program into emerging markets, that risk, of course, grows. How do you get uh, a, a vaccine that has to be stored at minus 20 degrees into the Congo, at, yeah. uh, at, into somebody's arm, in, in a stable way? Well, we've put... Uh, we've aligned a sensor business called Parcel with a, an underwriting syndicate here at Lloyd's to provide that insurance cover and to monitor those um, containers um, with the vaccine as they get transported. There's another one that you wouldn't have uh, dreamed of uh, a while ago called Gaia that is underwriting uh, IVF fertility treatments, for instance. Yeah. Now, these are all things that directly affect people's lives in a very positive way, and if we can help them. IVF treatment is incredibly expensive to mm -hmm. do. You don't know whether you're going to need it when you start out in life. It's mm -hmm. one, something that kind of happens to you. And so to be able to buy protection against those kinds of issues and have the support that you need that would enable you to, to produce an offspring that, that, that nature is making, making it hard to do is very exciting. And I think we've got to keep pushing with, uh, with the frontier on those things and making this a more, more exciting place for people to bring ideas, to bring capital, and ultimately to bring, to bring customers. Thank you, Bruce. I think that's a wonderful place to end it because the Lloyds have a big uh, soft spot of ours. And uh, I said this is, this is episode 100 and, and the first 10 were basically going through the Lloyds Lab list and inviting those guests on. So we've had many people from the Lloyds Lab and I know that from their experience, they've been blown away by the expertise they've been able to lean into here and, and it's been really rewarding for them all. So it's a great initiative. But thank you so much for your time, Bruce. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being a guest. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.